I'm Grant. And I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. That's right. This history report is being filed jointly. <laughs> no? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll change it for next time. Welcome to our very first ever episode. It's so Yeah, it's so nice to have you with us, uh, joining us on, on this project we've been working on for a little while now. Yeah, yeah, yeah a little while. And we thought we'd start by talking about my favorite place in the world. I think, yeah. In the world? Is. I think okay. so. I'd say it's like my favorite place in Michigan. Well... I mean, Disney World exists, so... <laughs> and, but this isn't that. This is no. Mackinac Island, my favorite place in the world, so there. My favorite place in Michigan. Well, no, second favorite. Second, second favorite. Second favorite. Let's just scrap this and start with some place we really care about. Gosh. <laughs> But yeah, Mackinac. Uh, Mackinac Island is an island in the Strait of Mackinac. Everything sort of shares a name, and we'll get to why that is in a minute. Uh, It's the strait that separates the upper and lower peninsulas of Michigan. It also connects uh, Lakes Michigan and Lake Huron, and right around the corner is Lake Superior. So it's... uh, it's like a big interstate interchange, but for water. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about it's a little less than four square miles total. Uh, right now, it just has a resort town and is mostly state parkland. So we're gonna talk about the history of the island, and mm-hmm. talking about that is also talking about like the history of the whole Michilimackinac area. Right. So not just the island, but some of the mainland as well. Right, so that's uh, Mackinac City on the northern tip of the lower peninsula mm-hmm. and the town of St. Ignace on the southern tip of the upper peninsula, the the bridge that connects it all. Really, the, the whole region, it's all bound together. The island was home to a bunch of fishing villages going back at least to uh, 700 CE. Uh, that's the oldest stuff they found yet. Yeah. Still digging. Uh, yeah. <laughs> still looking. Uh, it was considered a holy place by the Ojibwe. They thought it was home of a Giche Manitou and also the first land to appear after the Great Flood receded. Every culture is going to have a Great Flood myth, and uh, Island of Mackinac uh, features pretty prominently in uh, the Ojibwe version. The Native Americans named the island Michamackinac, which was basically translated to Big Turtle because it kind of looks like a big turtle. Yeah. I think there's actually like a children's book that tells this tale. And yeah. it's about like, isn't it about like the turtle becoming the island or something? That sounds like a really like that, good kid's book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, I remember seeing it. Uh, so the French took Michamackinac and spelled it Michelamackinac. Or it has a C at the end, but if you're a French person writing it and handing it off to another French person, they oh, Michel Macanard. And so that's why it's silent now. Uh, also, as things go on, other places uh, end it with a W, so people don't say it wrong, even though <sighs> you're, you're losing your, your history, your heritage. Come on. Uh, other transliterations uh, include Michina Macanago. That's an interesting one. Got some extra syllables in there. Why not? Uh, Mishima Kinung. Mishine Makinago. <laughs> okay. Okay. Missila Mackinac. That one makes sense. Yeah. That one. That one's a bit closer. You turn your soft CH into just an S. Missila Mackinac. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this one. This one. Teodonderagi. How? Do we get that? Between its religious significance and its location in the strait, uh, it was a very important meeting and trading place. 
traveling overland for roads, much less, you know, the internal combustion engine, not great. But you've got a canoe on the lakes, you can get anywhere, anytime. And that's why places like the strait, the island within it, are really important for uh, people to, to connect with one another. So, uh, speaking of people connecting with one another, the uh, first European settler was a French Jesuit named Claude de Blanc, who built a mission for Native Americans on the island in 1670. Uh, Jacques Marquette moved the mission to the Upper Peninsula the next year. Uh, the mission was named for St. Ignace, which is the French name for St. Ignatius. If you're more familiar with Ignatius, same, same saint. And that's why the town there is named St. Ignace. It, it's named after the mission. There's a great big park on the island between uh, the, the big limestone bluffs and the harbor. And in, smack dab in the middle, there's a big statue of Jacques Marquette. Poor Claude. There's no big de Blonde statue there, which is a shame. Yeah. You think he's he knows? As, as a dead person? Like he's looking like, down from heaven. And just shaking his head like, like, thanks guys. All these other missionaries, they get their statues. Everyone gets plaques and, and statues and everything. I just... Like, we, we learn about Jacques Marquette. Uh, there's a town. Yeah. There, yeah <laughs> there's, there's a town named after him. the city of Marquette. But, like, he shows up in, in our history books. I've never heard of Claude de Blonde. No. Yeah. No, not Poor much. guy got the short end of the historical stick. It's too bad. It's too bad. <laughs> uh, so the next came uh, the first fort. So there was a very large and growing uh, fur trade happening. Mm -hmm. So the French built... Voyagers. Yes, all the voyagers. <laughs> um, not the Star Trek type, but other voyagers. Uh, I think Neelix knew how to shoot a beaver if it came down to it. <laughs> I can see that fool shooting a lot of beavers. Uh, yeah, okay. So the French built Fort Michelin-Mackinac. At the northern tip of the Lower Peninsula, and this was in uh, 1715. Mm -hmm. So it served as a trading post and supply depot for fur trappers, traders. Um, the, the fur company. The company. Um, anyone who happened to venture into the area, really. Right. If you were adventurous enough to live out there, it was the it, place you went. <laughs> right. To buy food mm -hmm. and blankets. Yep. To tra trade what... For what you needed mm -hmm. to survive. So as the fur trade continued to grow, which it did grow a lot, mm -hmm. um, as more people moved to the area. That's why we have a Canada. That's why we have Canada. <laughs> uh, the fort's walls were expanded uh, multiple times to make room for more people and more business. Um, some of the residents of the fort included, oh, you got to say his name. You well, say it the I... best way. <laughs> it was Chicago's founder. Jean-Baptiste Poit du Sable says it's so good. <laughs> and um, Ezekiel Solomon, who was the first uh, Jewish person to live in Michigan, as they say. As they say. I mean, I wonder yeah. if it's true. Like, were there oh, others, okay. you I... know? Or like, were there other people who snuck in under the historical radar? Or was like, huh? I'm I, curious. The, the way you say it makes it sound like it's a common, like, turn of phrase. Like, that's the way the cookie crumbles. Well, no, that's like, the that's, first Jewish resident in Michigan. That's what the history <laughs> book says. Say. But, I mean, do they know for sure? Are you calling Ezekiel Solomon a liar? I just thought no, of him I mean, as this lonely, tragic man with no one to go to temple with. But, but, you're, but you're, did he meet every single person in Michigan to know? <laughs> I'm just curious. I mean, I when they're always like, well, that's the first person or the only person, I'm like, how do you... You know for sure. Ezekiel Solomon, first liar in Michigan. Great. No, Thank you. I, anyways, uh, 
in the fort, there was also um, St. Anne's Church that was founded mm-hmm. in 1695. Well, it was founded in 1695, and they built the church um, in the fort in 1746. It still exists. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, one of the oldest Roman Catholic parishes in North America now. Right. So uh, St. Anne's Church, the parish, mm-hmm. it started as an offshoot of that St. Ignace uh, mm-hmm. mission. Yep. And so they built a church in the fort yep. after there was a fort. Yep. And then it moved back to the island. Yep. It moved back to the island where it still stands now. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty cool. Pretty cool. Uh, speaking of transitions, uh, a lot of things change over the years, for one, the French and Indian War happened, uh, our North American branch of the Seven Years' War between uh, France and England. And so after it concluded, there was no action anywhere near Michilimackinac, but the British still won it in 1761. The French traders and civilians still stuck around and continued to do their business because that's their job. But uh, the French military left and the British military moved in to take their place and and do the the administrative work. Mm -hmm. Uh, The French had tried to ally with the Native Americans while British treated them more like a conquered people. So the new management was not particularly popular with the locals. Part of that was the uprising of Chief Pontiac. Uh, He was a leader of the Odawa people. In May of 1761, he laid siege to Fort Detroit. There's currently a split between historians whether there was a big coordinated uprising across uh, the Michigan Territory or whether it was like uh, a lot of people who were upset. And then once uh, Pontiac started acting in Detroit, everyone else paid attention like, yeah, let's get us a piece of that. So whether it was spontaneous or coordinated, in either case, it did inspire that uprising across the Great Lakes region, including in Michilimackinac, where in 1761, in June, uh, local Ojibwe played a game of Baga Adoe against a visiting team of socks. Now, it's a stick ball game that's a lot like lacrosse, if, if you've heard of yes. lacrosse. Have you heard of lacrosse? I've heard of lacrosse. I know lacrosse. Is and it- I also, like... I mean, I know what that thing is is too. Sure. Pretty cool. How much of your lacrosse knowledge comes from American Pie? American Pie, the movie. Yes, which heavily yeah. features a lacrosse team. It, it does. Um, I was exposed to it before that. I'm pretty sure there were some like movies of my childhood where someone played lacrosse. But so, but that sport, that yeah. sport. I'm pretty sure there was there was some movie forever ago that like featured the origin of lacrosse. I can't mm-hmm. remember what the movie was called now. But I remember seeing it in his historical Was play. it called Baga Adoe? No. Uh, it should have been. But anyway, they, they knocked a ball over the wall into the fort. And so the doors open up. And they're like, hey, let's get our ball. We're just going to come in. And that's when suddenly uh, everyone rushed in, grabbed some weapons that uh, Native women had smuggled in earlier, and killed 20 of the 35 soldiers stationed there, either in the attack or in executions later. We know the story of this because there's an English fur trader named Alexander Henry who uh, had become friends with uh, one of the Ojibwe leaders that had taken the fort. And uh, while he was captured, th- this friend of his like, no, no, all these English people suck, like totally. But this one, this one's cool. Uh, let me take care of this. So uh, Alexander Henry gets smuggled onto the island uh, late under cover of night and is hidden in a cave. And he has a very uncomfortable night. He does. He really does. The, the way he tells the story later is like, I, I just had the worst sleep. I, I was on these uncomfortable, lumpy rocks that covered the floor of this cave. Yeah, rocks. 
And then the sun came up, and he sees that all these stones he was sleeping on were human bones. Yeah. See, uh, what he was sleeping in there is now known as Skull Cave. It was a, a traditional native burial site. Uh, so, I mean, a good place to hide. No one's going to look from there. But it made for quite the story to tell around the campfire later in his fur trapping career. Yeah, and that's that's especially something to uh, wake up to if no one's warned you. Like, hey, yeah, you're it, gonna be sleeping on this. You you roll over and your pillow rock has like eye holes and teeth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You think that you think he could have gotten a little warning about that? It sounds like he just had no concept that that's what was happening. Would he have stayed? Like, if you're stowing someone in Skull Cave, do you tell them it's Skull Cave? Because they're not going to be there the next day if they know. How are you going to find your buddy? But then you give them the reason. No one's going to look for you here. This is the best place to be, bud. It's a four square mile island. There are other hiding places. I think this is just a chance to play a trick on, on your pal. Maybe it was a weird sort of comic relief. Like, okay, I know we just killed all of the soldiers and some of your trading company friends. But, uh... Pretty funny, right? Come on. Skull game. In any case, a year later, uh, British troops arrived, uh, beating back uh, all of the uh, Pontiac uprising. And when they came to retake the fort with an actual military force, it was just empty. Like, they, the Ojibwe didn't want the fort. They just wanted the British out, you know? So why would they even stick around? Yeah. In 1780, the fort's uh, commandant was worried about uh, news of a colonial militia under a guy named George Rogers Clark. Uh, he was having some success in the Illinois Territory with some cannon just rolling up small forts along the Illinois River coming north. And he's like, wait a minute. All we do is give people like bullets in exchange for beaver parts. We can't stand up to no cannons here. <laughs> All right, so we're going to take the whole fort apart log by log. And we're going to carry it in the winter over the frozen lake to that island. We're going to climb 150 foot high bluffs and rebuild the fort. And now no cannons are getting us there. Ha 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 ha. Why are you laughing at me for? I'm not laughing at you. I just, I just love that they did this. Yeah. That they're like, this, this, this is the thing to do. This is the thing to do. So that's what they do. Like piece by piece, they uh, disassemble Fort Michilimackinac and rebuild what we now know as Fort Mackinac, uh, looking down over a, a natural bay, over the edge of those sheer uh, imposing bluffs. And what they didn't bring with them just burned right to the ground. Leave it all behind so none of these darn Yankee rebels can get a piece of it. And here comes the best part. So yeah, what is, what's the best part, dear? The best part is none of those Yankee rebels ever got anywhere near the Straits of Mackinac. So, I mean, I guess you could say that just the threat of this George Rogers Clark guy destroyed Fort Michilimackinac. D does he get that in the win column? Suppose. Dude from Virginia, so scary, they burned a fort to the ground and he wasn't within like a hundred miles ever. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> But the uh, officer's stone quarters built inside uh, Fort Mackinac is now the oldest standing building in Michigan. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. We're going to say oldest fill-in-the-blank in Michigan a lot. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. St. Anne's is the oldest parish. we got the oldest standing building. Blah, blah, blah. In any case, the uh, Americans did get Fort Mackinac, even though they didn't threaten it. Uh, a repeat of the French and Indian War situation in 1796. 
Uh, that was 13 years after it was given by the Treaty of Paris, but the British took their dear sweet time packing up and moving out. So, once again, is failed to be defended and changes hands. So now uh, Fort Mackinac is an American deal, and they've moved in, and they're taking care of the, uh, the fur trade. Uh, people are starting to uh, settle, even though they're not necessarily supposed to. Uh, and they're watching over these new American citizens on this new American frontier of the, uh, the Northwest Territory. Until we get to July 1812, when 80 boats of British troops and native allies and a pair of cannon land on the north side of the island and sneak up uh, over this wide field behind the fort. See, the bluffs face south. They landed from the north, where there ain't no bluffs. Seems like kind of an oversight, quite frankly. Yeah. Basically, they show up on this big parade ground, and they're like, Hey, uh, Lieutenant Hanks. We've got more boats full of people than you have people. <laughs> what you gonna do about it? So Lieutenant Hanks, he looks around, he sees he's one of 60 men, and he looks through his notes and finds that no one had yet informed him, nobody told him there's a war on. And so he's like, yeah, yeah okay, you got the fort. Uh, there you go. I am out. The military history of Mackinac is just a series of, of awful losing fights. Like, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just go now. Uh, no, mm. there, there you go. Just take it. Uh, Lieutenant Hanks was then summoned to Fort Detroit to be tried by a court-martial for cowardice. Uh, during his trial, the British attacked Fort Detroit, and he was cut in half by a cannonball. That's what he gets for, uh, giving up the fort. I don't think there's any way to defend against being shot by a <laughs> cannonball. Hanks is probably the most unlucky man in the entire war of 1812. Uh, the Americans came back later in the war in 1814. They have five big old ships. They have 700 soldiers. Uh, and so they park in that harbor there and they start shelling the blockhouse of the fort. They cannot hit it. It is too high. <laughs> that was like... I mean, for once... For once, something's working. For once, it worked. Like, the whole plan, we're going to build it on the bluffs and the Americans won't hit us with their cannons. Like, 25 years later, 30 the, years later... It, it came in handy. It came in handy. It just took a while to get there. There's an old, retired British commandant who's, like, reading the newspaper about this. Yes, yes, it has come to pass. <laughs> Our plans have worked. Couldn't hit the blockhouse on top of the bluffs. Hit a few uh, vegetable patches. They were definitely worse for wear. <laughs> Those poor cabbages. So without doing anything to the uh, the fort itself, they send these 700 soldiers against an entrenched position. It does not work well for them. And so it remains the only time a fort in the whole Michelin-Mackinac region was successfully defended. One time, ever. <laughs> and it was done by an occupying force. Yeah. So uh, after the war, everything gets straightened out. One of the most useless wars in that everything just goes back to the way it was, including uh, the United States having Fort Mackinac return to them. So with that, now that we've set the stage for why it's uh, my favorite place in the world and it barely cracks your top 20, though you still like no, it. No, <laughs> it's second. 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 I'm sorry. I have a very fond place in my heart for a beach that's in another part of Michigan. Okay? <laughs> but in any case, now that we've set the stage for those stories, we're going to take a quick break and be right back.
back and um we're gonna continue on with some more cool facts about Mackinac events and crazy stuff that happens there tell me some crazy (laughs) stuff that might have happened in Mackinac my my favorite favorite Mackinac story yeah one that has been with me since I was a wee child visiting Mackinac. Is this why you were such a strange child? <laughs> I mean, this was the type of stuff I was interested in as a child, yeah, so it was, probably... was, okay. <laughs> and still am. I was very upset when at first I thought it wasn't still on Mackinac. But in any case, we, we built the anticipation built up, built so strong. So, in 1822, there mm-hmm. was this guy named Alexis St. Martin. Now, he... he sounds like a cool guy. So, Pretty great name, right? So he worked um, in the fur trade, mm-hmm. and he was in one of uh, the company stores, com- outposts, mm-hmm. you know, to trade. Uh, specifically the one on Mackinac. Specifically the one on Mackinac. And a musket went off, mm-hmm. basically right next to him, and he was shot in the stomach. Ziffer trade, she is a dangerous business. <laughs> And he was taken um, to the fort to be treated uh, by a doctor. Now, an army doctor by the name of William Beaumont, which, if you live in Michigan, you may know of Beaumont Hospital. It's the same Beaumont. If you don't live in Michigan, there is a hospital named after him. Dr. William Beaumont mm-hmm. was stationed at the fort and uh, was called to treat his injuries. Now, they didn't expect St. Martin to live. But he did. Well, I mean, when you get shot in the gut. Especially in the 1800s. In the 1822, this yeah. This ain't gonna happen. And in addition, like, in we addition j- to the we shot... We just figured out it wasn't witchcraft. Like, yeah. come on. <laughs> Into his stomach, there was a big hole there. There was also, um, I think they said a couple of his ribs were broken, and some of his muscle tissue was, like, completely ripped out and destroyed by mm-hmm. the force of the shot. So, pretty pretty messed up. But he lived. The, the hole in him healed. Mm-hmm. But not, like, closed. It continued to stay a hole for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had this great hole from the outside of his body all the way into his stomach. I, I believe they call that a fistula. A fistula, yes. And while he was still recovering, mm-hmm. um, Dr. Beaumont decided to use it as an opportunity to study digestion. Right, because when God closes a door, he opens a window into a man's stomach. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, of course, what you would do while this poor person is trying to fight for their lives and, and figure out how to live with a giant hole in their side. Very carefully. And having to put, like, plugs in there and stuff to make sure stomach acid doesn't drip out. My name is Alexis St. Martin. I have arrived in my formal wear for the prom. <laughs> oh, no, the stomach acid. It is spilling out oh, of no. my cummerbund. You gotta plug it up. Oh, cork. oh dear. Excuse me. Excuse me. <laughs> Dr. Beaumont tied food to strings mm-hmm. and would drop them into St. Martin's hole uh-huh. and leave him there for a few hours. And then he would check on them and pull them out mm-hmm. and see what was happening. Doctor, so at- what are you doing? It is not Easter. Why are you dunking an egg inside me? <laughs> so it's important to remember that at this time, they didn't really know how digestion worked. They didn't know about the actual process. Right. Um, it was kind of thought that, like, your stomach just kind of crushed stuff for you. Like, it was, it was chewing part two down yeah, there. It, it was chewing for you again. Um, so through Beaumont's uh, tests and study of this, mm-hmm. he uh, found out that 
digestion is a chemical process. Um, and that led to the discovery of digestive enzymes and the break, how it breaks down food um, through that process. And uh, he even, like, took, like, stomach acid out of St. Martin's stomach and, like, kept it in cups and would, like, do tests on his table and just, like, see what how different food reacted mm-hmm. in his little table of cups. You know that part in uh, Miss Congeniality where she's playing the, the cups? Yes. Did Dr. Beaumont ever do that with stomach acid? Maybe. Maybe. Okay. Maybe. The jury is still out. Get back to us, my, real historians. My real question is, did he rig some type of device to, like, hold the strings out so they didn't, like, fall in, like a teabag falling into your cup of, like, hot water? Or, like, did he tie them to something or were they just left to dangle? That's Doc, what I want to know. Maybe Dr. Beaumont's real innovation was inventing scotch tape just to, like, <laughs> hold it down to his stomach. I mean, did he, like, tie them all in a stick and then the stick had to sit there on St. Martin's stomach? with like these strings attached to it excuse me dr beaumont i believe the bunny goes around the hole (laughs) these these are the questions i have about these types of stories (laughs) there there was a very interesting relationship between dr beaumont and saint martin because it didn't just happen in mackinac that's where like the initial stuff happened and where they met obviously yes some a lot of this uh study was actually taking place in um other locations including uh Fort Niagara in New York. Um, I believe that's where most of it took place. Um, Beaumont and St. Martin continued to move around, both right. together and separately. As an army doctor, Beaumont got reassigned a bunch yes. of places. Anyhow. Um, and there was a, a very strange relationship, because William Beaumont ended up like signing St. Martin into his service. Right. Um thing to keep in mind is St. Martin had assigned a contract, which he could not read because he was illiterate. <laughs> so who knows about how, you know, legal that Do- was in some terms. Dr. Beaumont, you assure me this is merely for insurance purposes. <laughs> okay. Oh, no, I am your servant now. Oh, dear. Yeah. So depending on, like, what, where you read stuff about them, some people say that St. Martin stayed because he felt like he needed to um, like, offer thanks for saving him. Right. Um, but a lot like of stu- a Wookiee would. A lot of stuff goes to he was kind of uh, kept against his will. Um, St. Martin left several times. He was ordered back to Beaumont at one point when Beaumont was living like in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, there is the time St. Martin ran away to Canada. Yeah, St. Martin, because he ran home trying to escape. Mm-hmm. Um, and until for 12 years from when this happened until Beaumont's death, the entire time when they like weren't together in the same location, Beaumont was like trying to convince him to come to wherever he was. And uh, Beaumont ended up dying in St. Louis. And apparently his whole entire t- life, the, the years he spent in St. Louis, he was continually trying to get St. Martin to come to him. To come back to him. He wanted to continue experiments. He wanted to continue his study. Mm-hmm. But just let the guy live his life. Like, when you're the digestion guy and there's one test subject in the whole world mm-hmm. who can do your experiment. Yeah. It's, it's a career thing. I get it. I get it. I mean, Beaumont wrote a lot of books about it. He's really considered um, the father of gastric like physiology mm-hmm. and understanding what is happening there. So to kind of end their story, Beaumont ended up dying by slipping on some ice. Uh <laughs> Like a chump. St. <laughs> Martin lived for quite a while longer, and he, when he died, um, his family actually had to, like, 
have his body rot before being buried because people would not leave them alone. They were approached so much by different doctors and scientists who wanted to do autopsies or preserve certain parts of his body. And they're mm-hmm. just like, no, we just want to bury our family member. So we're going to do this so you can't have any of it. Dr. Beaumont is honored on Mackinac Island by a museum, which is actually the site where St. Martin was shot. Mm-hmm. It's um, partially a museum for that fur company. Yes. But it's more famous as the Dr. Beaumont Museum because that's like a little more than half the square footage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then there's a monument outside his office um, in the fort, which reads uh, near this spot. Dr. William Beaumont, United States Army, made those experiments upon Alexa St. Martin, which brought fame to himself and honor to American medicine. Which is really obscuring the fact, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, which, which, that's the thing. Like, on, what, a, the, what a nice whitewashed way to put all this business. Yeah, in that fort, it's very much, there's just this little, little plaque that says that, and nothing going into these details. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a exhibit in the fort, because it's now a historical site, Yes, for army medicine that was carried out there. And there's a lot more about the malaria vaccine in Mackinac than there is about... <laughs> Solving the mysteries of digestion. Yeah. And now, when I was a kid, I remember there being very graphic dioramas <laughs> of Beaumont and St. Martin and, like, getting shot and, like, dripping, dipping food into his stomach and mm-hmm. everything. I hope those still exist. Those really shaped my childhood as a seven-year-old. And if you want to find out for yourself, it's right across the street from the fort. You cannot miss yeah. it. Yeah. So that that's that story, that's, which is my one of my favorite historical stories. And that's why I love you, dear. Yeah. Yeah, you weirdo. <laughs> Let's just fast forward through the 1800s. <laughs> so uh, the fort continued to be maintained by the U.S. Army, but was always abandoned whenever American soldiers were needed elsewhere. Like, uh, if it's time to go fight the Mexican War, it's empty. If it's time to fight one of the Indian Wars, it's empty. Civil War, same deal. The fur trade continued to decline as we used up all of our beavers, but, uh, com- <laughs> what? Nothing. As we used up all the beavers. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and commercial fishing overtook it to become the biggest business in the area, and with commercial fishing comes sport fishing, people going out and catching big, big old trout, I guess. What's even in there? That's a fish. There's no freshwater marlin, though. That's the thing. And so when people were were sailing around the uh, you know northern Lake Huron, the Strait, to to find good fishing spots, you can't you can't help but uh, note the natural beauty of the island. And you know, want to camp, want to just check out these really cool uh, limestone uh, features. So tourists began to arrive. Uh, In 1875, federal land on the island was declared Mackinac Island National Park. It's the second national park ever created. So take... Yeah. Sequoia, you think you're so great? That's even Mm. before Yosemite. Oh, boy. Yeah. (laughs) So with this new national park to check out and... uh, the well-to-do of the Midwest and even the East Coast exploring, just looking for a good resort place to hang out and get away from the hustle and bustle of the, the noisy industrial revolution. 
Mackinac was right there to accept these people. So they built uh, the Grand Hotel in 1887. It's one of the world's highest rated hotels to this day. It is very well reviewed uh, and has the world's largest front porch, okay. which I didn't know was a record anyone was going for. The world's longest porch. Is this where we can pause and like talk about the Grand about Hotel? Our, my, our opinions of the Grand Hotel. Never feel restrained from sharing an opinion. Okay. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so, currently. Currently. Currently, if you go to Mackinac Island and you are walking around and you're not staying at the Grand Hotel, but you want to go look at it because it is a very striking building from the outside. It's just, it, it is a, it's a historical a monument to Victorian leisure. It's what was gorgeous. that film that was made there? Oh, it was some Christopher Reeve romance about yes. a guy who fell out of time. Yes. People flock there for that movie. They go have like Victorian weekends that are dedicated to that movie. It is like, people love it. Mm-hmm. But if you are not staying at that hotel <laughs> and you want to just walk by it, not even walk inside of it, but walk by it, walk in front of it to like look at the porch from the sidewalk. The, this world record porch that you can see from space or whatever the hell. Employees will stop you <laughs> and question you mm-hmm. about if you're staying there. And if you're not, you could go buy a ticket. Of some sort to, like, access... The porch tour. The porch. (laughs) Or you just gotta turn around off the sidewalk because you can't even look at it or take a picture of it or anything. Mm -hmm. The place also has a dress code. Yeah, that's my favorite thing is, like, you're walking toward it and you start seeing signs for the dress code. What men are allowed to wear and what ladies are allowed to wear at different times of day. And it's basically, like, if you put on the They Live glasses, you you just see, like, you must have this many stock options to ride. Yeah. Also, if you look on Google Maps, like, Street View, you can go inside the hotel. The rooms are ugly. They're awful. They are terrible. If you want, like, the most blinding bad color mix <laughs> that just gives you a headache, stay in that hotel. They advertise that no two rooms are the same. But I think that's in part because they couldn't get enough of their awful wallpaper to yeah, fill more no than one, one room enough. at a time. No one makes enough of that print. Of any of, of those any prints, because they're all garbage. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a treat. Yeah, check out Google Street View, and uh, you can see the porch for yourself. You can see some of the rooms. It's the closest you'll ever get, unless you stay there. It's the closest <laughs> you'll want to get once you see the interior. But it's still a historical location. It is. It is within the purview of our show. Yes. Not long after, the national park was transferred to state control and uh, became Michigan's first state park. That was in uh, 1895. Mackinac Island State Park is now over 80% of the island's area. Oh, yeah. So It's exciting. It really is just the, the tourist village by the bay and a state park. And a small airport. The airport is mostly within state park land. <laughs> But is it considered state park? I think so. Really? Interesting. Some of of the private homes are state park land as well. Interesting. I told you, this is the show where a married couple teaches each other. (laughs) In 1898, to preserve the resort atmosphere and mostly to keep the horses calm, the vacation homeowners made cars in town illegal. Uh, Again, these are mostly wealthy people from uh, Detroit, Chicago, and even further east. 
1923, that ban on cars was expanded to cover the entire island, and that ban remains to this day. In the late 1890s, you know, when cars started showing up, it wasn't uncommon for towns to do that, to, to yeah. ban automobiles. Being an island, it's really the only place it could stick, and yeah. it did. So <laughs> M185 is a, uh, a maintained state highway that is entirely car-free. Yeah, and isn't the only one? It's the only the, one. Like, I think, country. I think in the United States, it is the yeah. only car-free highway. It just rings the whole island uh, for anybody who's got a bike or a horse. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, bike rentals are big, big business uh, on the island because it's the only way to get around. Uh, in fact, they do traffic studies of bike traffic. Bike rental companies are only allowed a, a certain number of rentals per day. So if you want a bike, they might be out and you have to go to the one next door or the one next door for mm -hmm. that because there are a whole lot. Or you just wait five minutes for someone to bring back their bike. Yeah. No big deal. <laughs> Mackinac Island has a uh, rather typical smell. Yes. I think. Yes, it does. Because if you're not into the whole bike thing, there are horses and horse taxis. Yep. Lots of horses. Mm -hmm. Lots of horses means lots of a certain smell. Uh, I mean, it's the only way to haul freight around, really, is, is horse carriages as well. Yeah. So uh, horse taxi horses are uh, bought from Amish communities around Michigan and the surrounding area after they've done five or six years of pulling plows. Mm -hmm. and so they live out their days spending winters just relaxing on farms, being maintained, and then uh, in tourist season taking folks from uh, their boat to their hotel or yeah. wherever else, which, other points of interest. Which is a pretty good gig because, I yeah. mean, tourist season on Mackinac, the majority of it is just summer. Right. It's also like, you know, the town's only so big. They don't have to go that far. It, it's a pretty nice gig of just you get to work for a little while and then you go rest. It's like a guy who retires from his job but then like volunteers at the local yeah. museum or yeah. historical village. Hi, Dad. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, that, that brings us to Mackinac today. Uh, it really does feel like a place out of time. Yeah. Like the whole resort thing. It's I'm sure a lot of it is affect to like get those pleasant associations, but a lot of it is incredibly genuine. Uh, I mean, every other building it seems has one of those historical marker plaques. Yes, yes. I, I actually wonder about like the percentage of historical buildings on it. Like, how much of the island is considered a historical building, or like yeah, on the yeah. verge of becoming I mean, a historical? Um... We'll, we'll have to go back and just count with our own eyes. Yeah, take a survey. I'm curious about that. <laughs> But uh, another big feature is the Mackinac Bridge, yes. which uh, began construction in 1954 and finished in 1958. Yeah. Uh, if you're concerned with transportation history, you might recognize that's when shipping uh, mostly moved from ships to trucks while uh, the interstate highway was knitting America together. Yeah. Uh, it's the first time the two peninsulas were directly connected rather than by um, ferries or anything. There's a road now. You can just drive. Yeah. It beat out another proposal, which was a series of shorter bridges uh, that connected the two peninsulas. Just island hopping, including Mackinac, which would have finally brought cars there, which just would have ruined the whole thing. Gosh darn it. Also, that just would have been terrible now with the amount of traffic that goes over that bridge. Can you imagine having oh, yeah. to like island hop like that instead and of, like those traffic lines instead of one gigantic bridge it's five 
quite long bridges. And like semi trucks going across those. Yeah. Oof. Nope. So uh, Big Mac, which is the dumbest nickname for a bridge I've ever heard, but they sure do love to use it, yeah. is the longest suspension bridge in the Western Hemisphere and fifth in the world. Yep. I guess the Eastern Hemisphere loves suspension bridges. I guess. I mean, if you're a person that really likes bridges, they also do a bridge walk. You can they go do. walk across that bridge once a year. It's like on the anniversary of the dedication. Yep. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Fort Michilimackinac is another one of my favorite little bits. Yeah, you love this bit. I, I love colonial Fort Michilimackinac. <laughs> and it is really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. It's still there. It's been reconstructed partially. In 1960, they began our archaeological excavation, which continues to this day. Uh, every year, they set aside another little chunk to do. Uh, it's one of the longest continual digs in North America. And the reason they do this bit by bit plan is that the longer a plot waits, the more advances in archaeology it can take advantage of. So like the stuff in the 60s doesn't have any of like the uh, imaging techniques we have today. Yeah. You know, they, they had no ground penetrating radar. They uh, didn't have the same collection uh, protocols, preservation or any of that. And who knows what is going to be the next thing around the corner. Mm-hmm. So there's always going to be a little more of Fort Michilimackinac to discover uh, with the, the benefit of all that technology. Now, when the footprint of a building is entirely excavated, they build a replica and it joins the historical reenactment park. Uh, that's, that's like my favorite thing. It, yeah, yeah. Because it means like, no matter when you go, mm-hmm. it's always a little different. They've always yeah, done a little yeah. more. Mm-hmm. They've always done a little more excavation excavating and then eventually after so many years there's probably a new building yeah (laughs) there's probably a new thing that is standing a a new building which in turn contains a new exhibit yeah Uh, a a new thing to show off speaking of exhibits they've got continual tours they've got people uh in period dress uh, historical reenactments they fire the cannon Yes. They don't put balls in it, thank goodness. No, no. Uh, it would really depress people fishing in the strait. Yeah, probably. I caught five trout and a giant hole in my boat. Yay. <laughs> uh, and they have plenty of exhibits of artifacts there as well. Now, if you've heard of Mackinac Island, mm-hmm. it, there is a good chance, outside of all these other things, the context <laughs> was for fudge. Yes, you should know about the fudge. Mackinac Island fudge is pretty big business. It It is like... The business. Mm-hmm. It is the thing. In uh, 1887, Murdoch's Candy Kitchen um, became the first fudge shop on the island. Um, and quickly, other fudge shops joined because who doesn't love fudge? And tourists will buy fudge. Well, once there are tourists, but, you know, <laughs> regular people want to buy fudge, it, too. It was already a national park by the time. Yeah, point. yeah. It's just hard to think of, like, tourists existing then, though they totally did. It just seems... Tourist in our modern day idea is very Tourists different. existed in Pompeii. It was the yeah. whole point of the place. Yeah. Anyways, Murdoch's, what they ended up doing was they moved their tables where they made their fudge mm-hmm. from the kitchen to the front windows to turn fudge making into a show that people watched. Like, people would just yeah. walk down the street and see people making fudge, which is, if you've never seen someone make fudge, you should. It's, it's a labor glorious, intense. It's labor intense, but it's also like mesmerizing. Yeah, there's a lot of very precise, repetitive motion. Yeah. Then you just see like the finished product and you're that's you want fudge. You mm-hmm. want the fudge. You cannot walk by without wanting that fudge. They they also do the same thing with taffy at a lot of these places. Yeah. 
Um, so then everybody else also put their fudge tables in yeah, the front window. <laughs> that helped grow the popularity of this as a big business. Now, something else that they did first was put fans from the kitchen that blew the fudge smell into the street. <laughs> so that way, if you're walking by, you're like, oh my gosh, that smells amazing. I need to get some fudge. And what did everyone else do? Do this as well. So when I said Mackinac Island has a signature smell, it wasn't horse apples. It was fudge and horse apples. (laughs) Yes. You must combine the two to understand. Like if you were making a candle, a scented candle of Mackinac Island, (laughs) those are the two things you have to have. There's a whole bunch. Yeah. There's at least like 15 different fudge shops shops within the island. The town is like four blocks long. (laughs) There's 15 fudge shops. But that doesn't even include all the like random tourist shops that then sell fudge from these shops. Right. Or uh, the the companies that also have locations on the mainland in Mackinac City. Yeah. Or in St. Ignis. Ignis. That's just an insane amount of fudge. And they're all doing just fine. These fudge shops have lines. Line. There are 15 fudge shops, and they all still have lines with people waiting to buy their fudge. Mm-hmm. It's not like they're empty. There's always, like, 10 people in line. It's just the thing you do. It's like getting taffy on the boardwalk. You get fudge in Mackinac Island. If you were to visit Mackinac today, mm-hmm. uh, you would, you'd have the horses, you have the bikes, you have the fudge. Yep. The fort itself. Yes. If you climb the staircase they built into those giant bluffs. Good luck. Good luck. Good it's luck. a lot of stairs. It's really a lot of stairs. <laughs> but that's a, an interesting site to visit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what else? What else they got? Lots of graveyards, <laughs> which I enjoy. So, some of, again, the oldest graveyards in Michigan. <laughs> yes, um, which are really cool to, to see. And I mean, a lot of one thing that's cool about... Uh, Mackinac is a lot of those graveyards are pushed kind of back into the island a bit. So you have to take really nice walks through the wooded areas to find these super old graveyards. Um, there's also lots of other naturey things, like the road that goes along the island mm-hmm. on the outside. Which um, is entirely beachfront. Yes. It's gorgeous. All beachfront. So it's gorgeous to walk along there. A lot of people like to stack rocks along that beach. I think that's a thing people like to do on all rocky beaches. I guess. But it's still charming. It's very charming. We st- I stacked some rocks when I was yeah. there. A lot of the limestone on the island got carved into some interesting shapes mm-hmm. uh, when the glaciers retreated. So there's arch rock, which is a big arch rock that's just naturally there. Yeah. And there's uh, historical pictures of people from 100 years ago walking on it and posing like big strong men when really like you look like you're about to die. Yeah. They don't let you do that no, anymore. They built a walkway with handrails. Yeah. Uh, and the sugar loaf, which is just a big stone pillar standing in the middle of nowhere that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But it's there. It's there. Mackinac is really great for exploring. It is. It is. You just walk and you find something. Mm-hmm. Um, and because yeah. of all the stuff that's happened with, you know, being a crossroads of the lakes, if you find something, someone's probably found it before you and they were probably historically significant. Yeah. Like, like uh, when we went, we were just aimlessly wandering the interior and we found Skull Rock. Yeah. We, we weren't Skull looking. Skull Cave. Skull Cave. And we weren't looking for it on a map. No. We just found it. We're just like, oh, this thing's kind of Th- cool. There's, oh, look, there's the thing. There's hey. a plaque. What is this? 
And yeah, so that was something I don't think I knew of before growing up. I don't think we wandered as much into the island as we did when you and I went. Right. Um, so there's lots of really cool stuff we found in there that you could easily miss if, if you don't leave the little town. Right. But even if you do just stay in the little town, there's some great freshwater seafood to yeah. be had. Yeah. yeah. I had some really good uh, fish tacos. <laughs> I ate fish every day. <laughs> On that trip. <laughs> this episode brought to you by Pure Michigan. Talking about Pure Michigan. Let's, and how let's bring awesome the house down a little bit. Let's, let's get real. Let's wrap. Let's talk about something that's very, I don't know, I'm very, I guess, passionate. You are very about. passionate about this. There's some history there. Mm-hmm. There's some history in what I'm going to talk about. And then there's also like the current in this. So there is a huge oil pipeline that runs under the Straits of Mackinac, the Enbridge Line 5 which was built in 1953. Enbridge being the company that runs the oil pipelines. Yes. It's a it's a Canadian company that um, runs and operates much of the uh, oil pipelines that uh, run from Canada into the U.S. This one in particular runs from Canada back into Canada. Yes. Through Michigan. Yeah. It comes through the western part of the Upper Peninsula, down the Straits of Mackinac, and then it goes um, to southeast Michigan, and then crosses back over into Canada again, which is kind of crazy. It's not uncommon for people to do that. Yeah. If you're driving from Detroit to yeah. New York City, you cut through Ontario. So that's what it does. So it was built, as I said, in 1953 um, to carry synthetic crude, uh, natural gas liquids, sweet crude, light, sour crude, how many different oils you can talk about to um, do that. So, and it also originates like in Wisconsin. So it comes even before, um, mm-hmm. before Michigan, it travels through other places as well. Um, and it, it, as I said, passes under the Straits of Michigan. So it's running under the water, mm-hmm. under, um, under the water, under the bridge, under the bridge between this section of water. That's where Lake Huron and Lake Michigan meet. Mm-hmm. So it's been there a long, long time. The pipeline wasn't really meant to function this long. They kind right. of say like, oh no, it can function as long as it's in good shape. But it really was not meant to last for six decades. And another fear is that as the tar sands of Alberta continue to be pumped, mm-hmm. there's a fear that they'll put in less refined oil into the pipe. Yes, So yes. Yes, like exactly. Liquid molten sandpaper running yes. through the inside. Now we are getting these these harsher oils and chemicals and everything coming through it. There's been a big shift in looking into this pipeline of people questioning this pipeline. Um, the Michigan Petroleum Pipeline Task Force report criticizes Enbridge for um, withholding a lot of inspection data and uh, calls the company unreasonable for saying that it can operate the pipeline for basically as long as they want indefinitely right some of the issues with this is that data has been withheld part of this is due to like security concerns with what could happen if people get this information information you're withholding from terrorists is also information you're withholding from the autobahn society yeah and yeah yeah like what what information is in there that maybe should be knowledge about the state of this pipeline. So the fear is that it could rupture. And if it ruptures, the damage that would happen. It's said that it is basically the worst possible place Mm -hmm. for a pipeline 
to rupture within the Great Lakes. Conceivably, it could rupture anywhere, but if it ruptures in the strait, that is the worst case scenario. It's the worst place. Because you have multiple currents meeting there from the lakes, and the spread of uh, the oil, if it were to rupture, would be incredibly unpredictable and quick. Mm-hmm. There's been some studies to look into how the currents could shift the oil, how fast would it move it, how would it spread. But that's something that like you can never fully know because currents aren't a computer right. simulation. I mean, they opt- Every time you run it, it comes out with a different result. Yeah. Because weather is like that. Yeah. But it is understood that it would be... Catastrophic. Catastrophic to the area. Or catastrophic to the entire Great Lakes system because it's pretty much all connected. And there's also the fact that Line 5 has already ruptured. It ruptured in 1999 in Crystal Falls, Michigan. Again, this is the same line. This was in part of the Upper Peninsula Mm -hmm. where this happened. And then another Enbridge line ruptured near Kalamazoo, Michigan, which is actually the worst, one of the, the largest and costliest inland oil spills in U.S. history because it was went undetected for almost like 17 hours. And uh, sadly enough, this happened like the day or the week after an Enbridge person said, oh yeah, if so- if there's a spill, we'll know instantly. Yeah, they said, And oh. then this spill went undetected for 17 hours. Yeah, and this was only a couple of years ago that this happened. Right. Um, this was in 2010. This mm-hmm. was in 2010 this happened. Which um, is what first... I think it's the thing that got people to really pay attention to the state of these lines and what could happen in a worst case scenario. Yeah. There's a big push to look into this and what what is happening there. Some of the other issues come into the fact that, like, there's 135 federal inspectors for, Mm -hmm. and they oversee, like, 2.6 million miles of pipeline. So, like, each inspector is responsible for, like, enough pipe to circle the earth. Right. It's an insane amount how, of pipeline. How are you supposed to inspect that? Yeah. And there's also um, issues with the fact of, like, if it were to rupture, there takes a while there for them to be able to see mm-hmm. that it's even happened, to find out it's even happened, and then to be able to shut it off. Right. It's not like you can just, like, put a plug on it real quick or, like, stop it. Even after you stop it, there's still oil that's going to be flowing out. Mm-hmm. So no matter what, even the slightest rupture could be catastrophic to the area yeah and uh aren't there plans to increase the uh, it was increased already in 2013 the line capacity was increased by 50,000 barrels and they did spend money to upgrade like the pumping stations but no money was spent on the actual pipes right nothing was spent like to make sure the pipe's okay to like Mm -hmm. add extra support or extra walls or anything to like what if this happens so they've like they're upping their production and they're what they're moving through it Mm -hmm. but these pipes are from six decades ago (laughs) right like and they've had to put like support beams in certain areas because of uh ground like moving like falling away Mm -hmm. so i'm like there's areas um of the pipeline that isn't supported right and that was actually something i think I heard a lot of um, a lot of what they have done has come from other people, other organizations investigating the pipeline. Uh-huh. And it wasn't until it was made public that they did these things. So if there aren't those inspectors, if they aren't complying with these reports, the point you're making yes. is that the only way to protect and preserve the, the lakes, 
the mm-hmm. the uh, environment around there and you know how awesome the street is mm-hmm. is to keep pressure on Embridge so that they aren't allowed to say oh no it's fine yeah every time yes when so many times when they say oh no it's fine that's just before something awful yes. happens you know it's something that's invisible mm-hmm. to the people like we cannot see it unless you are diving under the water you can't check on it so it often goes missed it often goes forgotten but it can't because right. it's getting to a point where yeah it's fine but we're just we're just testing things here. Like, we're just <laughs> waiting for something to happen. And when when it happens, because mm-hmm. I really personally feel that it's not an if, it's a win. Right. You can't reverse that. Right. I mean, people say, like, oh, well, you, know, you can't shut down the pipeline jobs and da-da-da-da-da. But what about the jobs of everyone who works in that vicinity? What about the jobs of the... the you know, the, the fishermen. The fishermen. The, the tourist industry. The tourist industry. Like, there's a whole lot of other things to take into account there Mm -hmm. that and those are things you can't fix at the end so that's that that's That's something like you know my personal opinion look into it if you'd like to learn more it is still an ongoing fight for people in michigan who are trying to protect the area that's all we had on the docket to talk to about the history of uh mackinac island and all of the michela mackinac so uh, i think it's time to wrap up and talk about uh, our show and how it's going to work from now on. Yeah. So that was a pretty good first episode, you think? so even though it's our first episode we already have some listener mail we tweeted out our email address that's history honeys podcast at gmail.com if you want to get in touch with us with a prompt this time since we were talking about my favorite place in the world yeah and something like what 13 14 <laughs> on your list not that far down <laughs> at we, least third fourth maybe okay we, we asked people to uh, tell us their favorite place and a historical fact about it so what have we got ix sent us uh email and they wanted to tell us about uh the denver international airport because it's a front for a secret underground illuminati facility Included a, a nice picture of an overhead of that place. <laughs> what kind of weirdo loves the airport? Probably the kind of weirdo that loves editing a tabletop actual play podcast that I happen to be on. Yeah, uh, maybe that. Maybe <laughs> that. So thanks for the email. <laughs> thanks, Ix. Jamie tells us about Cape May, her favorite place in New Jersey, at least. Specifically, the wreck of the SS Atlantis. Uh, a concrete ship built by Liberty Shipbuilding Company that has a, a long and storied history, but was eventually sunk and turned into a ferry dock. I think my favorite thing that she shared about that is that the sunken ship was used as a billboard for boat insurance. So thanks for the email. Thank you. We received uh, one more email that was from... Furin, I believe. Furin? Furin? Hope we're saying that right. Please Furin. excuse us. That's a pretty cool story that we want to look into and we don't really want to share yet in yeah, case this was it a, leads to some... This was a show suggestion and we might just uh, take it to heart. If we do, you'll hear a lot more about it, I'm sure. Yes. It's a cool, cool email. So thank you there. So uh, thank you to all of you. And uh, when we have our next show topic set, we'll be sending out another prompt 
if anybody wants to get on that or just let us know anything else. Yeah, if you got some history that you think we would enjoy, send us an email and I'd love to check it out. Cool, cool. So this was a pretty special episode for us this time around. Well, it was our first. Well, it was our first, which automatically makes it special. But we were sharing and talking about this Mm -hmm. place, this history, which isn't really how this is going to go from now on. (laughs) Instead of both of us talking at the same time about the same topic, Mm -hmm. we're going to take turns. Okay, so we're going to do the whole, like, informed person, informee person. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so we each get how, a pick. How are we going to figure that out, though? Coin flip. Okay, cool. Good old-fashioned coin flip. I happen to have one right here. Good. All right, you want to be heads or tails? Heads. Because you're the head of this household? Yes, I'm the boss. All right. And it looks like you are taking the lead next time. Okay. Sounds good. All right. I happen to know what is on top of Elena's list for topics to do. So I'm going to give out our listener mail prompt right now. Okay. Uh, send us uh, your favorite boat and a fact about the history of that boat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think this whole swapping thing is going to be interesting because people get to learn a little bit about our various interests uh, following along the sort of topics we tend to lean toward. Yeah. You and I... Both love history, but we tend to go in very different directions in what our... Yours is the morbid direction. Yeah. Uh, Disasters, massacres. Epidemics. The the bigger the body count, the more likely it's going to be in in your half of the show. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And in any case, be sure to subscribe to us on uh, iTunes or add our RSS feed to your podcatcher of choice. And while you're there, please uh, leave us a rating and review. We're brand new. This is episode one, Ground Floor. It's going to help us a great deal, and it's never going to help us more than it does this time. Yeah. So do your part. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much for doing your part. And thank you, everyone, for listening and trying us out. Mm -hmm. We are really excited about doing this. Mm -hmm. So So, uh, also be sure to tell a friend. Yes. Word of mouth is even more powerful than those uh, reviews and ratings. But why not do both? Come on. (laughs) So uh, I guess all that's left to say is thank you for listening. And as always, I'm Grant. And I'm Elena. History's better with with your your honey. honey.